Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, and I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. Michelle, I hope you enjoyed your long weekend. I did. I know I did. Certainly the news didn't take a break while we were away. So we have another full show. We're going to talk about Ukraine. There's a lot of news about Hunter Biden. We have a fascinating story on open source technology that can be used to track just about anybody in the world. Mm. Chilling, actually. And we're going to talk about a recent effort by the Satanic Temple to start an after school program. It's going to be a fun story. It's pretty exciting. But before we get to those stories, uh, there are a few other headlines uh, in the news that we wanted our listeners to know about. First, as was widely predicted last week, Elon Musk, the world's richest man, the world's richest person, agreed over the weekend to buy Twitter for around $44 billion in cash. He can afford it. He's worth about $230 billion. The reaction to the purchase has actually been a little bit funny to me. Um, When Donald Trump was thrown off of Twitter, uh, many progressives said, tough luck. It's a private uh, company. They can make whatever rules they want. But now that Musk is buying it and is promising freedom of speech, which is like his thing, Mm -hmm. many progressives are now saying, wait a minute, this is terrible. He's going to clamp down on freedom of speech or he's going to allow freedom of speech if you're a conservative Mm -hmm. because he's a conservative. Well, you can't have it both ways. Nobody knows really exactly. No, it will be it will be interesting to see how it plays out. But this is the problem. You know, I'm going to we're going to bring this up later in the show again. But the worst, possibly the worst response I have seen to this so far is. uh, And we'll talk about this a little bit later. But uh, someone who should know better tweeting in case you are wondering if you live in in an oligarchy, you do like this. This is the indication that we live in an oligarchy. I know. Oh, I know. And on. that is that's how this is being treated. I mean, I think there is, a, you know, people are raising legitimate concerns about what kind of hate speech will now be allowed in a free for all. I think, uh, you know, one, one of the aspects of, that has been kind of going um, unnoticed is, uh, you know, maybe uh, allowing people to start dead naming uh, trans people and harassing trans people for their identity, which will be horrible to yeah. see. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. I don't want to I don't want to see a, a racist or a homophobic or transphobic free for all on Twitter. Absolutely not. Um, but, you know, this has been the problem the whole time is that you have these content guidelines that are supposed to be these sort of speech guidelines that are supposed to be applied uniformly and they simply haven't been. And so they've been, uh, you know, applied to uh, obviously uh, interpreted and applied to regulate content. And now they're going to yes. be doing that again in an opposite direction. And it's just like, yeah, yes. it's bad. It's bad both ways. Yeah, it is. It's bad both ways. Yeah. But it's not the end of the world. A New York judge yesterday held former President Donald Trump in contempt of court and ordered him to pay a penalty of $10,000 a day until he complies with a subpoena from the New York Attorney General's office to produce documents as part of an investigation into his company, the Trump Organization. Trump said that he would appeal the decision. Yeah. Now we're we're descending into, into the realm of the absurd. Just turn over the documents. You've been you've had the documents subpoenaed. You claim to have nothing to hide. It's your legal duty to turn the documents over. Just turn them over. Mm -hmm. Unless, of course, you do have something to hide. Yeah. You know, or it just benefits you to drag this out as long as possible. Or it benefits you to drag this out. Now, um, the judge today's Tuesday. The judge is going to decide today what day 
the fine begins. It'll probably begin today or tomorrow. Um, Trump said he's going to appeal. That doesn't mean that the that the fine is frozen pending appeal. Mm -hmm. The fine will continue to accumulate. And then if he loses the appeal, well, then it's going to be that much worse. Hey, there's a new book coming out tomorrow by two New York Times reporters. I don't mean to start laughing already this early in the intro, but I've I've read everything I can read about this book. Two New York Times reporters, they are giving us some explosive uh, political news. Oh, are they? Yeah. Well, it's supposed to be yeah. by Washington standards. Anyway, anecdotes released to the Washington Post show that Barack Obama and Joe Biden hated each other, which, you know, we sort of knew. Yeah. That Nancy Pelosi said that Obama was jealous of Biden. Her office had no comment okay. uh, yesterday. That Biden bragged that his administration has been more transformative than Obama's was, which is ridiculous. It's also, he's a year Who and a cares? half in. Yeah. Uh, yeah, again, a year and a half in. Okay, I mean, maybe it will be. <laughs> maybe. That Donald Trump hates everybody in the Republican Party. True. That everybody in the Republican Party leadership hates Donald Trump. And that nobody in the Republican Party leadership had the guts to say publicly that they hate Donald Trump. When are we getting to the new stuff? <laughs> I know, right? Right. Even though they complained about him constantly behind closed doors. Michelle, I think this is going to be an interesting book. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's going to be a news story for about 15 minutes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is it am I just noticing it more or is the write a book, write a book about the very recent past trend, like really, really heating up? Deborah Burks. Uh, is coming She's out. She's coming out with a with book. With a book, the former White House coronavirus response uh, coordinator. And again, just uh, everybody, everybody's trying to cash in like Deborah Burks, really? Seriously. You, and this was after she said she was bullied by Trump and she was scared of getting fired. And that's why she didn't say things that you she know, believed to be true. And I yeah. really don't have a lot of respect okay, for, so, for so Deborah Burke and how she handled. No, you know, again, you're talking it's, it's sort of not exactly the same as Bob, Bob Woodward, again, sitting on uh, this no. information about COVID being airborne until he could right. put it in his book and make some money. But yeah, if you're talking about it's not politics, it's not like pa palace no. gossip. No, if doesn't you're serious, matter. resign and write your book. Yep. Don't just tough it out till the end of the uh, administration, hem and haw and twirl your, your thumbs and then say, well, maybe I'm going to write a book. And I mean, I can see the virtue and this is the argument that is made that like in, so, in some situations, it is better to continue the fight from the inside than the outside. You know, maybe they resign and it's Doc, Dr. Oz is the coordinating right. figure right. of the COVID response, uh, which seems like it would have been a disaster, except, you know, we actually hasn't been a ton of improvement since Joe Biden. No, there really came hasn't into, been. I mean, in terms of death rates, no. uh, and it, it is shocking, actually. Yeah. Um, Agreed. But just, yeah, just sort of portraying yourself to be a victim constantly when you are in a position of, of incredible power and influence. Right. And then immediately trying to make a buck off your sort of personal experience in it. That's uh, right. It's distasteful. You know, she said something, too, that was carried in uh, the hill.com today saying that, well, if Trump were to push us just too far, we had a resignation pact right. where we were all going to resign. Gonna go down, yeah. Okay, yeah, but you didn't, did you? Yeah. So. Yeah, she wants to make a couple of bucks. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a kind of a strange uh, head shaker of a story that you've this. highlighted. I love this for story. Us. The Washington, D.C. Fraternal Order of Police has been fined $2,000 for violating six different laws in the course of a recent fundraiser. The FOP purchased $3,080 bottles of Jack Daniels whiskey, 
relabeled them with an FOP logo and then sold them all around the country without any legal authority to do so Mm -hmm. whatsoever. A private group can't just decide to go into the whiskey sale business. Right. You know, you just wake up one day and say, I'm going to start selling whiskey today. Also seems like if you are the police, you You should should know know this, which they, you know, sorry, you cannot convince me that they they didn't know they couldn't do this. No way. And they did it for three years. Mm -hmm. They did it from 2017 to 2020. They finally came to an agreement with the D.C. government to stop selling the whiskey and to pay the $2,000 fine. I wonder what the fine would be if it was just some dude selling it out of his house. Oh, reselling yeah. it out of his house for three years. I a heck what of that, a lot more than $2,000. Yeah, and I wonder what the tactics would be to uh, break into the, the illegal shop and, and haul the guy out and yeah. make him face justice. Yeah. And then they would leak a story to the Washington Post saying that the guy had been running a distillery. Yeah, yeah. No, just an outrageous story. And shout out to Bard in D.C. Yes. Great uh, Twitter account of just a sort of like a D.C. sort of alcohol flaneur who's turned into a, a newsbreaker. In fact, so great source of local news if you're here in you know, D.C. That, that was one of the very interesting things to me about this story is this was not carried in the Washington Post or the Washington Times or DCist or any of these other sites. It was barred in D.C. Mm-hmm. So kudos. Who thought, hey, maybe the police just blatantly breaking laws, not laws this time against uh, shooting people. Right. Uh, murdering them without a cause. But, you know, there's little little liquor regulatory laws. That That is news. Crazy. There is yet another development in the Durham investigation. Uh, Besides the fact that neither Durham nor Clinton campaign attorney Michael Sussman will raise accusations of any connection between the Trump campaign and Russia's Alpha Bank, which was one story Mm -hmm. over the weekend. Uh, They've uh, both agreed not to bring this up. Um, Durham also argued that documents and communications between Hillary for America, that's the Clinton campaign, and Fusion GPS should be made public and not be held as protected uh, as privileged and work product. That doesn't sound like a big deal. It's actually a very big deal. Um, And it sounds like it's pretty far down in the weeds, but I want to try to explain why this is important. Durham argues that this same so-called work product was shared by the campaign and by huge, uh, Fusion GPS with dozens of reporters, okay? So you can't take information that you have gathered in your research, provided to your attorneys, and then leak to the media and say, oh, no, it's protected information because this went to our attorneys. Right. Well, yeah, and it also went to a dozen reporters, so it's not protected information. Sussman told the FBI, this is another thing, that he wasn't representing anybody. Right. This is the whole basis of his defense. So if you weren't representing anybody, then why is the Clinton campaign saying this is protected? Mm -hmm. You just told the FBI you didn't represent the Clinton campaign. Mm -hmm. So they don't have standing. This is really becoming ridiculous. It is the, the theme of this monologue or this uh, first segment today is you can't have it both ways. You can't. Yeah. Yeah, it's as simple as that. It is. I mean, it is. I was going to say it's a shame that this, of course, doesn't get very much attention. Right. Like the Russiagate scandal for years and years was was front page news. It has completely disappeared now. And the slow and painstaking and in the weeds and sort of like eye glazing process of of unpicking it 
is really not getting very much attention. And I do kind of understand why when you have to go, well, here's the reason is if you give it to an attorney and you give it to blah, blah, blah. It gets into a lot of sort of technicalities. But, you know, we are going to be dealing with the aftermath of this huge, almost entirely manufactured uh, media crisis and political crisis for decades now. You know what I mean? All of this yes. stuff, all of this distrust of the media, all of this sort of the, the, the divisions in American society that we like to sort of wring our hands about. Do you think that this is not exacerbating them? Right. In, incredibly. You know, you think the whole like the, the election lie would have gotten them, the, the Trump, you know, the, the election being stolen from Trump in 2020. Would that have gathered as much steam if, uh, you know, the, the Washington Post and the New York Times and the rest of them had not been embarrassing themselves for four years. And I have and to so, ask, you know, I understand that people are people are out of attention. right? Yeah, people don't right. don't care anymore. Um, but it it is important. It yes. is important to see the process by which this whole scaffolding came to be erected. Yes. Right. Yes. I, I, I have two questions you know, for myself where I, I wonder, did the Clinton people think this would never come out? Did they think that that the facts would never uh, become public, that we would never be having this conversation? That's number one. Number two is why is Sussman doubling down like this? You know, the Clinton people are going to walk away from him. They're in the process of walking away from him right I mean, now. It, I mean, well, this is a guy that that could have negotiated a deal six months ago. He's going to lose his law license regardless of what else happens. But by doubling down, he keeps taking on the Durham people and the Justice Department. He's going to end up going to prison. Sure, it's going to be a couple of months in a minimum security camp. But is this really worth it? What's the guy get out of this? I am going to just repeat analysis that I have heard and found compelling. But the Clinton people are very loyal. A lot more loyal than Obama people, a lot huh. more loyal than, than Biden people, certainly more loyal than Kamala Harris's right, people. Who certainly. Are fleeing like They're a, jumping like rats. off the ship. Uh, Clinton people, like them or not, they really are loyal. And I wonder if this is part of it. Maybe. The other thing here is that I, th I think people lose uh, kind of it loses a little bit of steam because there's no big bad guy behind right. this whole thing. You know what I mean? Right. Like even the Clintons themselves, there's no there, there's no like big bad puppet master. It is a story of a whole bunch of bad relationships. Yes. Bad journalistic work. You know, and it's the story of like look, looking at a whole bunch of connections that are all a lot closer than they should be. And a bunch of people who are all sort of trusting each other and, and trading access with each other in a way that they shouldn't be. And so if you're looking for like one big evil figure, you know, Hillary Clinton with strings dangling from her yeah, fingers at the right. end of this, you, you are not going to find it. What you will find is a real right. indictment of, of political and media culture in Washington, D.C. And that is not as exciting as, as pulling back the curtain and seeing an individual. But again, as I say, it is important. Uh, and the work of, of undoing it is going to be a lot more messy than just finding one, you know, one, one big baddie to throw the book at. Yeah, I think you're right. Yep. It certainly bears following. You found something interesting that uh, popped up in the news today. Oh, yeah, too. I've just been, it has been exciting to watch uh, these unionization efforts in, yeah, in the U.S. We'll be exciting. watching now the, the vote at a second Amazon facility. Uh, in New York, they started a union vote on Monday. I think we'll get the results next week. But today I learned uh, Delta Airlines has not been paying its flight attendants during boarding. Crazy. And now because uh, there's a unionization <laughs> drive at Delta, the only airline whose flight attendants aren't unionized, 
uh, Delta has said, oh, that during that time when you are definitely working, doing the job of like, you know, helping passengers get into the airplane and sit on the plane and not punch each other in the face over masks and whatever. Oh, yeah. All right. I guess we'll pay you because now we're scared that you're going to have some bargaining power. So uh, outrageous. Usually this, flight this attendants are paid to me. when the aircraft doors close. Are you kidding me? See, I just. I just assumed they were all on uh, salary. I yeah. guess not. Well, yeah. we have a big show. We have Tony Alexiou coming in. We have Lucian Greaves. We have Ted Rawl and Dr. Jack Poulsen. We're live in D.C. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned and we'll be right back. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with Michelle Witte. Secretary of State Tony Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin traveled to Ukraine over the weekend to meet with Ukrainian President Zelensky and to ensure continued American support for the Ukrainian government. Austin made something of a provocative statement at the end of the trip, saying that the U.S. was seeking a permanently weakened Russia. The two also announced that the U.S. would step up its diplomatic presence in Ukraine and would increase security assistance and military training for Ukrainian forces. They also confirmed that there are no peace talks or negotiations taking place. Meanwhile, Moldovan President Maya Sandu convened an urgent meeting of the country's Supreme Security Council after two blasts damaged Soviet-era radio masts in the breakaway region of Transnistria. There were several explosions the day before at the state security ministry in the city of Tiraspol. The Moldovans are fearful of being dragged into the Russia-Ukraine war. We're joined here in the studio by Tony Alexiou. He's a principal at the Minotaur Group, a Washington, D.C. consulting firm that specializes in geopolitical risk and homeland security consultancy. Welcome back, Tony. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me back. I appreciate it. Tony, let's start with a visit of the two most important cabinet officials in Washington, to Ukraine. The Blinken-Austin delegation was meant to show support for Ukraine at the highest levels. What was the substance of this visit beyond promises of more arms and training? What exactly was accomplished? At its core was to show that the Americans are here and not just to the Ukraine, but to show to the Russians that Americans are here. Uh, and they have Ukraine's back. And yes, it was a meeting that, like you said, it was promises of more technical assistance, more weaponry, more money, all that kind of stuff. The kind of stuff you would see in a situation like this normally. But it's also a message to Moscow saying, you know, hey, not only are we are we helping from Washington, but we're right here. We're, you know, right. Like 500 miles from Moscow right now. Kind of right. Thing. So we're here. Um, and it's also, you know, if you recall, Boris uh, Johnson, I keep missing with Boris Yeltsin, two very different people. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, British Prime Minister British Johnson, uh, there uh, I go again. Boris Johnson uh, was there about a month or so ago. You know, yes. and he, it was a big picture of him with uh, with President Zelensky strolling the streets of Kiev and whatnot. I, I, I'm that should have been the Americans first, ultimately. I'm sure the Washington wanted to see right. that, not being right. Boris, lead, not being they President Johnson leading that. They were scoops. So they had to do something. Now, would, would Biden himself end up in, in Kiev? No. If I was head of the Secret Service, I would fight that tooth and nail. Just try the security arrangements and putting a president in a war zone would have been unreal. You know, that's why all these presidential uh, visits to Afghanistan and to Iraq were unannounced. Absolutely. Because you don't want anybody to know that you're going. Absolutely. In this case, it was announced well in advance, mm-hmm. days in advance, that they were going to be there. Yes, I, 
it was, and that there would, it would have been a security nightmare to have President oh, Biden yes. there, for that matter. Not to say that there wasn't security for for secretaries Blinken and Austin, but uh, it's it's much lower lower key than than uh, than than what it would have been. So yeah, it was it was it was it was to be expected. I'm actually surprised it took as long as it did to happen, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, but it happened, and it's it's just it's sending a message at this point right now. Give us your thoughts on this uh, statement we've learned that uh, Defense Secretary Austin made that the U.S. seeks a weakened Russia. First, how do you weaken a nuclear power? Is Austin saying that U.S. policy is is regime change? Is is that what this is meant to uh, convey? I don't believe that the U.S. has a policy on regime change in Russia. I really don't. Uh, if they do, it's a very, very poorly thought out policy, if that's the case. But I don't believe that's the case. Now, his, his statement of a weakened Russia... I, I'm guessing it was more of an off-the-cuff statement than he made, off-script. And what he would say, like anybody else would say when they see an adversary, is you want to see a weakened adversary, of course. You know, what you'd want to say, I'm sure Moscow's feeling the same way about Washington. They'd love to see a weakened Washington so and, and weakened NATO. Uh, you know, quite frankly, I think President Putin was kind of counting on that when he when the invasion in Ukraine happened. Right. Um, and that, that turned out a little bit differently, for, unfortunately for the Russians, fortunately for, for the West. Uh, it depends what, what side of the fence you're sitting on with this thing. Um, in terms of weakening a nuclear power, the, the issue of, of, of between superpowers, the issue of nuclear weapons is to me is not even part of the equation at this point because both countries have such destructive arsenals yeah. that at, at this point, you know, if one launches, the other will launch. They're going to cross each other over the Atlantic somewhere. It, it's not even a conversation at that point. Like it's not, you know, unless you're, you're on a suicide mission and both countries would have to be, you know, and, and, and Russians for, for, for the Russian government for, for whatever they're doing in the Ukraine, they are still rational actors. At the end of the day, they still want their lives. They still want their country, just like the Americans do. Nobody's going to do this thing. So in terms of weakening of, of, of using nuclear nuclear weapons as a way to – how would you weaken a nuclear power? Unless you're dealing with North Korea, it, it's right. not – It's not to me, it's not an equation not, – not part of the equation of two rational countries, two rational leaders. If something happens somewhere where, you know – there's a coup in one of the countries and some nut job takes over. That's a different story. Well, you know, first of all, I agree with that. I, I agree with everything you just said. But then we see something this morning that Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, says people don't realize how close we are to a nuclear conflict. Well, I mean, doesn't that sort of defeat the purpose of of conveying the notion that cooler heads are prevailing? It's, it's rhetoric, I think. Yeah, I think at this point, it's something you want. Right. You want for the media. You want to show strength in. You want to show strength to the Russian people in Russia. You don't see much action or response. At least nothing overt in the United States, which means that the no. U.S. the Americans aren't either. Either they're not taking this seriously overtly, or they're freaking out quietly. And I don't know what the answer is there. To be honest with you, um, I, I think at this point it's just it's it's just it's war rhetoric. Uh, and a lot of the stuff leaders say, you know, just like. Secretary Austin says we want to weaken Russia. You know, yeah. Lavrov says, hey, you know, we're, we're like inches from the button. Yeah. I don't think either one is really serious, right. to be honest right. with you. I, I think they're both just, just conveying their frustrations of what their governments are seeing. And that's about as far as it goes. One of the things that, that many Russians are concerned with uh, is the notion that American policy is to break up Russia into its component independent republics and to have sort of a, a second round of breakups Second, uh, after what we saw when the Soviet Union fell apart, I can't uh, imagine the U.S. wanting that or anybody wanting that. Oh, would that be a was disaster. my question. That would be a disaster, and so many different levels. You know, when the USSR fell, uh, the, the 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 nation that became what took over the institutions of the former USSR was the Russian Federation, which they were the same leadership that was seasoned, that was experienced. They had institutions that were mature, that worked. They had a process of doing things. They had security in in terms of their weapon systems. They had control of the military. So if we take that apart, what's the successor state to the Russian Federation? What, a bunch of different republics that break up? 
tribal leaders? Yeah. Who the hell are those going to have? Can you imagine yeah. China's reaction if you have seven countries sitting in Central Asia right now, two of which are a warlord, and bam, they've got right. nuclear weapons now because, right. you know, there is no Russian Federation to safeguard the weapons that were part of the former Soviet Union. You know, Ukraine, they say Ukraine had nuclear weapons. You say they gave up their weapons. They didn't give up their weapons. They were Soviet weapons. Yeah. And and the Russians said, you know what, well, these are actually ours. We have the codes. So yeah, because Russia was the successor state to the Soviet exactly. Union. So it's like, you know, the Republic of Irutstuk takes over, and there is no central country anymore. That is the country. God knows who the hell's around that place. And oh, look, I've got 500 nukes now. Yeah. You know, fine. I won't attack the U.S. I won't attack China. Right. Sure, as long as I'm going to keep the stands up. You know, and keep then them the on West has to deal with, let's say, Chechnya as a nuclear power. Exactly. Chechnya, Ossetia, any of right. these places. You know, China's freaking out about this. And relatively, because they're there. It's going to happen on their doorstep if this thing happens. You know, and it's not going to be good for anybody. It's going to be horrible geopolitically in that region. I, it would be a disaster. I can't see anybody wanting that to happen. You know, I didn't even think, frankly, about the Chinese reaction to something like this, but I think you're exactly right. The Chinese have to be just about just as worried about this as as the West is. Even more so. It's there. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, fine. I can hear about the crack house on the other side of town, but if it's on right. my block. Yeah, that's different. <laughs> I'm, I'm really worried about that's that. That's different. One, you know? Jeez, right. I didn't even so. think of that. Last week, we talked about um, yet another appropriation of $800 million in arms for Ukraine. That was the third tranche of $800 million since the start of the Biden administration. Does this just go on until the war is over? Can the Ukrainians even absorb this much in the way of uh, arms and materiel? I think yes and yes. It wow. will go on. And I think they will find a way to absorb material and, and money. And granted, this has been going on. This is the kind of stuff. This is, and Americans aren't the first ones to do this sort of thing. You know, countries have been helping other countries in sure. warfare quietly. You know, Like the Russians did with the North Vietnamese during the Vietnam or War. In Angola, or we did or with how, the Afghans. With the Afghans or yeah. in Central America. It goes sure. back, you know, the British helped the Greeks against the Ottomans. Yes. The French helped the American colonists against the British. You know, the Visigoths helped the Franks against Rome. You know, it's just right. kind of what it was. And it's it's nothing new. It's just the difference is that back in, in the past, these things were done more covertly. And because communication wasn't what it is now, and things were done quieter, there was a way to do these things. Now everyone's got a camera. Everyone's got a social media. Everyone's got a phone. I could sit in a meeting and tweet, oh, Blinken just pledged, uh, I don't know what, 20 tanks to Ukraine. And it's out in the open. That was done quietly 50 years ago. Well, you right. found out about it in some right. congressional hearing 20 years later, you know? Oh, yeah, that, you're absolutely right. So it's all out in the open now, but this is not new, and it's not going to—I don't think it's going to stop. You know, like I said, the Russians did the same thing in Afghanistan and Angola and in Cuba and in a number of places. You know, the Cold, Cold War was based on that, yeah. both the U.S. And, and the Soviet Union funding their sides of every conflict. Well, let me ask you a follow-up to that. There was a, a video on CNN this morning uh, showing uh, a shipment—I think it was in Slovakia—a shipment of these ancient Soviet— uh, weapons that had just been sort of sitting in a warehouse since the fall of the Soviet Union and the Slovaks had, you know, possession of them. And so they're loading them onto a plane to send them to Ukraine because this is what the Ukrainians have been trained on. It's what they're used to using. Um, th there has to be a finite number of leftover Soviet weapons. Absolutely. So, and they're all being used right now. So and they're all being used right now. So, <laughs> so is, is this what we're what we're hearing in terms of training, that when the United States is training uh, Ukrainians, it's going to be in the use of Western uh, systems and I, Western I would weapons? I it would have to be. I suspect it would have to be. I don't have a definitive answer on that one, but I suspect it would have to be because at some point the old Soviet stock is going to get used up. Right. And the fact that some of it's still even still working is amazing to me, to be honest with you. I, uh, I thought the same thing. You know. I didn't know there was any old, I mean, besides AK-47s and ammunition, I didn't know that there was any old Soviet. Well, you're going to uh, see old stuff everywhere. You know, I'm sure the Germans have old Nazi mines. I'm sure, you know, there's First World War stuff you're still digging up in, in trenches that sure. still technically works. You know, I, sure. 
me- the mechanics of a system are still the same at the end of the day. And it's either it's either been maintained or it works or it's been made really well and it still works. But there's only so much of it to go around. At some point, you're going to run out of the stuff, and there wasn't that much to begin with, and we're using it up now. <laughs> so, Yeah. Tony, the Department of Homeland Security announced over the weekend that it would implement a new program that would allow virtually every American to sponsor a Ukrainian refugee. Not a rhetorical question here. This is a legit question. Why do this? There were no such programs to sponsor Afghans, Iraqis, Libyans, Syrians, Somalis, uh, anybody else, frankly. Why? Why now? It's good, Wilford. We're coming up at the midterms right now, and we know what the popular thing is around here. You know, the Greek phrase is, and Michelle, I'm sorry, don't speak Greek, but it's for, for the consumption. You know what I mean? Sure, most people might do that. Other countries have done. In Canada, where I'm originally from, they had a program where you can sponsor Afghan refugees. And they uh-huh. did, you, know, you pay X amount of money to the government, and they provide you a tax break if you employ them, blah, blah, blah. So I don't know what the details of the program in the U.S. is. Nor do I. Um, and I'm sure there are, I don't know if there are details yet or what have you. But it could be something like that. But I think a lot of it is just like, oh, look, President Biden's doing good. Oh, and guess what? We've got midterms in, what, six months now? Right. <laughs> so it's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's theater a little bit. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Let's talk about Moldova for a minute. Let's talk. You know, I, I never really had much in the way of interest uh, in, in Moldova. It's a, it's a very – Moldova, thank you. Dimitri's uh, correcting me. See, <laughs> I don't even know how to correctly pronounce the doggone country. The only place I've ever seen anybody from Moldova is uh, 90 Day Fiance. You know, I was thinking the right? same thing, actually. That guy from Chisna. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> At the very start of the war, President Putin stood in front of a map that appeared to show a path uh, for Russian troops into Moldova. This was thought to be something of a bad joke. Maybe it was a propaganda ploy, a warning. Well, now we hear news of these explosions, right? There, there have been explosions over the weekend. There was another explosion yesterday. What does this mean? Is this internal opposition in Moldova, uh, is it Russian sabotage? What are we supposed to make of this? I don't think it's Russian sabotage because it's a Russian area. What it could be? It could be a couple of things. It could be the Moldovans doing a terror, some group of Pro- unknown uh, Moldovans. A provocation, a maybe. provocation. It could be Ukrainians worried about that right. being a launching pad for for an attack on Western Ukraine. Um, because these are ethnic Russians. These are ethnic Russians in, in, in trans- Transnistria. Transnistria. Thank you. I can't say that in a bet. Uh, in Transnistria, it's 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 a, it's a Russian enclave, and it's essentially it's an autonomous region. Uh, well, right. it's technically part of Moldova. Moldova. I'm sorry, Dimitri. Uh, <laughs> technically part of Moldova. It's not it, it, it's not really governed by Chisinau at this point. Not really governed by the by the, by the they have no control over this area. Ah, um, see, I didn't even know that. So there's Russian peacekeepers inside Transnistria, inside this region as well at this point. Um, so. If the Russians wanted to open up a Western front in Ukraine, they could potentially use this area as a launching pad because it's a friendly area to Russia. Yeah. And there's already troops there. Uh, one of the things, if I could interrupt you for sure. one second, one of the things that uh, that our boss uh, talked about here in our editorial meeting this morning is that the Russians, if this were a Russian operation, they, they would have no way to protect themselves. So it wouldn't make sense, as you're saying right now, it wouldn't make sense for the Russians to launch this attack on Western Ukraine from Moldova just because it would be impossible to supply them. It would be impossible to uh, protect them. It would be impossible to come to their aid in the event that they were attacked. It would be. They're on their own at that point. Yeah. Because they're, they're surrounded by unfriendly areas. Uh, right. And they're, they're far. They're not, it's not, you know. And you, it's far. They got to get across the Black Sea. Well, yeah. the Russians have some trouble getting into the Black Sea these days. So that's not going to work for them. They can't go overland. 
Um, I think, you know, and it was, I believe it was President Lukashenko that showed the map in, uh, from Belarus. Right, right, right. Uh, I, That's I think, right. It wasn't Putin. It was Lukashenko. You're exactly right. Uh, only because he reminds me of one of my uncles, which I find very funny. And I was an associate President Lukashenko with, with, my, with my late uncle, but a uh, different story. But um, it's, uh, I, I think that may have been a plan in the beginning before things got bogged down in Russia. Or maybe not. May have been misinformation for war. War is weird. You know what I mean? Between the fog of war, there's some information. There could be, you know, I, I can't imagine an ally of, of Russia would say, well, here's our battle plan for the whole world to see. I, I can't imagine that that being, I don't know, weird if yeah. that happened, I suppose. Um, you know, creating a land bridge between, between Russia through the Donbass, through Crimea, into Transistoria would not have been unheard of had things not been bogged down in Ukraine the way they are. I think that's off the table. If, the, if that ever was on the table, it's off the table now. Okay. Uh, and like we said, the most that, that could happen was was Russians launching what attack they have from there. They've yeah. got maybe uh, last number I said was like maybe fifty thousand troops there. That's not going to do a whole lot, uh, you know. And like you said, they're going to be sitting ducks. So. Well, and let me ask you another thing too. Uh, Moldova is not a member of NATO. No. It's a member of something called the North Atlantic Cooperation Council. Council, not a member of NATO. And indeed, in its constitution, uh, by by law, it has to be neutral. Yes. So what happens then if things start to fall apart in Moldova? It borders Romania, which is a NATO country. It borders uh, Ukraine, which, of course, is not a NATO country, but is at war. So what, what do you think the Western reaction would be? The Western would be? reaction would be, you know, be, you know be finger wagging. I don't think they'll do anything more than what's going on in what they're doing in Ukraine right now. Because, uh, again, you don't want to trigger an Article 5 response. From yes. anybody. You don't want, you know, Romania Absolutely could say, because there's, you know, Moldova is ethnic, primarily ethnic Romanian, with the exception of this little sliver that's in the eastern part of the country. Uh, I, I suppose they could be like, well, you know, we're worried about our Romanian brethren and, you know, we can help in that. But again, you have a NATO attack. So it can't, it's not, it's not just, it's not a black and white calculation that goes into this. Um, it's, uh, you know, and being part of, of the North Atlantic Cooperation Council, it means about the same as being part of the World Trade Organization. You know what I mean? It doesn't, yes. it doesn't, it's an, it's an international organization and that's it. There's no, there's no defensive pact to this thing. There's nothing more to, to whatever it does. Yes. Uh, so if, if, if Moldova was attacked, it would be attacked. And I think that the West would, would do They'd whatever they say, wow, that's down. a shame. That sucks. But, you know, it's, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Moldova. <laughs> you know. One final question before I let you go, and I, I, I'm going to ask our listeners a forgiveness if nobody's interested in this but me. Um, but day before yesterday was Orthodox Easter. Yeah. So Orthodox Christians were on a different calendar. Our Easter only once every seven years coincides with everybody else's Easter. This year we were a year, a year late. There was a lot coming out of the various churches in Constantinople, in Antioch, in Jerusalem, in Alexandria, Washington, DC. <laughs> in Washington, DC and New York, uh, condemning the Russian Orthodox church and Patriarch Kirill that not only is, has one Orthodox country attacked another, but, uh, they fought on Easter Sunday, which is such a huge sin. Wow. Right. It was bad. Okay. I was bombarded with press releases yesterday from all these Orthodox churches. Okay. The Greek Orthodox Metropolitan of Pittsburgh. Metropolitan is a, for us a step above uh, bishop and just below archbishop. Essentially a cardinal. Essentially, essentially a okay. cardinal, yes. The Catholic version of cardinal. Uh, he yeah. went so far as to say that Patriarch Kirill of Russia was not the Antichrist, but an antichrist. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen language like that before. That's never. almost that's almost like damning with faint praise. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, do you think that this is going to be a, a permanent or semi-permanent problem between 
officially Orthodox countries. We're talking about Russia, Ukraine, uh, Greece, Bulgaria, Romania. There's a huge Orthodox presence in Macedonia, North Macedonia, Albania. Uh, even Poland has a significant Orthodox church. Well, church politics are, and, and I can speak, being being Greek Orthodox myself, yes. I can speak to, I, I which can't is speak why I asked. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the church politics within within the Orthodox Church is just as bad as any civilian political system anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. There have been uh, some knockdowns and dragouts recently. I was going to ask Johnny, are you seriously <laughs> asking whether uh, religious restrictions on violence and killing are going to be upheld? Oh, <laughs> people were just shocked and appalled that they. Fought on Easter Sunday, like everybody just assumed there would be this Easter ceasefire, mm-hmm. and it never happened. I mean, isn't that also making a pretty big assumption about the uh, religious fervor of these members of the armed forces or the people who are, you know? Oh, you'd be surprised. Okay. Yeah, you'd be surprised. Okay. Well, I, people I, are pretty hardcore sometimes. Yeah, and it's <laughs> uh, you know, but it's it's hardcore to the point where they're you know, there's been throughout history the the, the Greek patriarchate has excommunicated the Russian patriarchate, yes. mm-hmm. they've excommunicated the Egyptian patriarchate. It just over the course of yes, time, it just yes. somebody says something. Oh, we add an extra word to this prayer, or we took something away from the from the from the from the creed, or mm-hmm. yes. God knows what. Listen, it's like, well, if, I, don't know, I can't take communion with you anymore. It's you know, yes. happened recently, actually. Between if you, the change comes after the year six forty three, we're not doing it. Well, that's it. Yeah. yeah, and so and that year, a couple of years ago, when it was the Ukrainian Orthodox Church broke away from Moscow. That's right, and they they, they wanted to become their own patriarchate. Right, and of course the Greeks are you know being the Greeks like oh yeah we'll help you out. So and and and, and the they Russians got, they got say this is this. And the Russians like what are you doing? So they excommunicated the Greeks. The Greeks don't like the Russians. And then you got the Russians in Russia. You got the Russians outside of Russia, which, which are, are two, two separate different churches. Churches. It's all. It's I can we can do a whole show just on <laughs> the Orthodox Church, quite frankly, um, and what it is. So it's. What the priests do at their own level here, and what, and then the metropolitans and the bishops and stuff like that—it's you know—it's their own political beliefs spilling over into the uh, into 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 the churches. Whether Indeed. or not you're into that, that's an opinion. That's, that's your own opinion at that point. Well, how much of what you want to accept? And um, you know, the only thing to hold this back is uh, the priests in Greece are unionized, and they went on strike recently. So uh, <laughs> while while there were services over Holy Week, now they're on strike. So there are no weddings, no baptisms, and no church services. The only things they're doing are uh, funerals until they get a pay raise. <laughs> we're going to leave it there. We were happy to be joined here in the studio by Tony Alexiou. He's a principal at the Minotaur Group. That is a Washington, D.C. consulting firm that specializes in geopolitical risk and homeland security consultancy. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou talking now about why we need Satan in schools. Uh, This satanic temple was in the news again last week because of controversy over one of its after-school Satan clubs. The temple is suing Northern Elementary in York, Pennsylvania, after the school board voted to deny the formation of an after-school Satan club. The school already has a Christian club, And according to reports how this came about, one mom from the school district wanted her kids to be able to take part in some formal extracurricular activities, but there weren't secular alternatives. Enter the after-school Satan Club. 
uh, of which I believe there are already four chapters in different states. The York School Board said no, uh, although it is being reported that they might have sort of whispered that if you take Satan out of the name, you can have this club. Um, but they are now being sued by the temple that was co-founded by our next guest. We're joined by Lucian Greaves, who is, as I said, co-founder of the Satanic Temple and a spokesperson for the temple. So, Lucian, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Before we get to this particular lawsuit in Pennsylvania, I want to ask how these particular after-school Satan clubs began, whether this was an idea that came out of the Satanic Temple itself, which, of course, you know, I, I think I think most of our listeners will know, but the Satanic Temple uh, has a, a long history of using religious freedom to try to actually protect civil liberties in the United States and is uh, said over and over, it is not using these clubs to proselytize about Satan. But so with that said, I want to ask, was was this an idea that came out of the Satanic Temple or did it come from parents who were looking for secular activities for kids and also maybe to make a point about actual religious freedom? Uh, how did this project start? Kind of, kind of both. Uh, when the Satanic Temple started, we immediately started looking for engaging in equal access claims where mm-hmm. They had opened the door for religious organizations to engage in speech and limited public forums and things like that, because we saw a real problem in government institutions giving the appearance of specific endorsement for a particular religious viewpoint when pluralism is supposed to be the rule. There isn't supposed to be viewpoint discrimination engaged in by any government entity when it comes to religious speech and public forums. So people were beginning to look to to us as kind of a final option to push back against encroachments by theocrats that they didn't approve of. There's these evangelical clubs in a lot of schools that were. So go on. You were telling us how this project came about, and you mentioned that there were uh, evangelical Christian clubs in schools. Yeah, yeah. And so we we would get parents reaching out. Hmm. You know, ultimately, it seems like the parents really have the good news clubs taken out. But it's too late for that. The Supreme Court ruled that it's religious, not categorically allow religious after school clubs if you allow any secular clubs. So the best we can do is engaging in viewpoint neutrality, other clubs that offer a different type of curriculum, one that isn't there to proselytize to children. So that's why we created the after-school Satan Club. Mm-hmm. Some parents use after-school clubs as a type of daycare. Uh, they need to fill that time in some way. So what we did was we just set up an alternative for those who didn't want the, uh, the want to send their kids to the Bible clubs. Mm-hmm. And what we found is, contrary to the Supreme Court ruling, that claims that no reasonable person or no child would think that any of these clubs are endorsed by the school district or any such thing. We find that everybody thinks that. And when it comes to the after-school Satan clubs, people are looking to the school boards to deny us, to ban us, to kick us out. And we found the school boards even think that that's within their authority when it's not. And mm-hmm. we ran into a New York where the school board put it to a vote. It was never theirs to put to a vote to begin with. Mm-hmm. Here we are. Mm-hmm. And do you ha- are there four clubs operating already? Yeah, there are four clubs, and two of them had real controversy attached to them when we uh, first started. And uh, the other two, they were just approved, and they moved forward. And 
we really heard very little from the community there. And now that they've been in operation, there isn't a real uproar. And I think people realize that they don't have to send their children to it and they don't have to engage with it if they don't want to. So it's really where we find where we have the controversy are pretty much the places where the school district has insisted on causing the controversy. And then insultingly, after the fact, they'll often claim that we were just looking for attention. Right. Can I ask, I mean, is it true that there were suggestions that this club could be started if it in, in York, Pennsylvania, if it took Satan out of the name? And I wanted to ask, you know, one, why, why is it so important to be able to keep Satan in the title of the club? And, and what is the outcome you're hoping for with this lawsuit in Pennsylvania? Well, to us, it's important to keep Satan in the name because we're the satanic temple. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of assumptions about what Satanists do and what Satanists are. And we genuinely identify as Satanists, even though in a non-theistic sense, we don't believe in the supernatural. But this kind of background mythology contextualizes our ethics and community for us. We're not going to conceal the fact that we're the Satanic Temple. And even though we're not teaching children about Satanism, we want people to know that that's part of what Satanists do. We don't proselytize. We don't try to convert people. But we also want people to judge us for our real world actions and understand that we do things that are pro-social and have value in their communities. And there is no they have no right to ask us to be something else or to call us something else or to rename ourselves to make people more comfortable. The fact of the matter is people are very uncomfortable with evangelical groups coming in and trying to convert their children directly. Mm -hmm. So they're going to have to deal with the satanic temple. And if they really have a problem with allowing us that equal access, that's something they need to take up with the Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. not the business of some kind of low-level government functionary to start deciding which types of religious expression or religious identity are appropriate and which are not. Mm -hmm. And I really hope that people overall can realize, even if they don't like the idea of self-identified Satanism, that... There's a much greater evil in allowing government functionaries like this to take on that type of authority. And what we're seeing is that they're very much willing to do that. Yeah, I think that that's an interesting point. And honestly, one that, you know, until we were having this conversation was not one that I had really thought about. Right. I have followed the Satanic Temple and, you know. Uh, efforts to promote and protect civil liberties using uh, equal access and using religious freedom. But, you know, yeah, not only forcing the the government to adhere to constitutionally protected rights, but also ensuring that, you know, local local petty tyrants can't emerge to sort of enforce their own views is it does seem important lately. And it was a sort of aspect of this case that I hadn't really been thinking about. I also want to ask about um, abortion, which is it's the most important part. Mm-hmm. And I can't really stress that enough. And that's what we saw in York County. They had a school board vote as to whether they would allow us equal access. It was never theirs to put to a vote to begin with. But even the event itself, mm-hmm. just uh, low level functionaries creating a bully pulpit from which they knew there was going to be community outrage and they wanted to put the people from the satanic temple on display to, uh, to, to take the brunt of their ire. And I think that's really inappropriate. And Mm -hmm. I I really hope people can understand 
the disturbing the, more, the disturbing aspects of that. Well, do you connect any of this to the ongoing fight that's getting a lot more attention over critical race theory and what should be taught in schools and how much you know influence parents should have on school curricula, et cetera? Are, are these two uh, fights connected in your mind? They aren't, actually, because to me, uh, when the Supreme Court rules that the school facilities are a limited public forum, it places it entirely outside of the school curriculum. It should place it entirely outside of these parental concerns, at least insofar as what's in the school itself. The schools may change their policies about what kind of materials from the after-school clubs are presented inside the school, posted on their cork boards, and other such things. And if they do that and find a, a, a level ground where everybody can agree it's okay, uh, then, then I think we've really caused for an improvement. We're not doing anything to change the school's own curriculum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to talk also, just while we have you, about abortion, uh, because in some ways that, that feels also very urgent, these increasing restrictions on abortion that have been enacted by a number of U.S. states. Uh, I saw an article about efforts the Satanic Temple is undertaking to protect the right to an abortion uh, in Texas, and I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about those efforts and efforts underway else, uh, other, in other states. Yeah, what we're really seeing is that uh, the the courts do treat religious claims a lot differently depending on what the religion is. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're IRS tax-exempt church, and so we shouldn't be treated any different than any other type of religious claim. When we go in and claim that since one of our tenants upholds bodily autonomy and we believe in the right to choose whether whether somebody gets an abortion or not— uh, we found that the courts scrutinize us in ways that they just do not scrutinize Christian claims. And we saw yesterday uh, the Bremerton case. The Supreme Court is hearing a case where a coach feels the need to pray out in the middle of a football field before the games. The school district told him he couldn't do it. He sued as a religious liberty claim. And I was just trying to think of how this would work if it were a satanic temple making an equal claim. Mm-hmm. We find with our abortion access claims, is they'll scour our literature, look over our tenants, mm-hmm. and they'll say things like, well, there's nothing within your scriptures, within your tenants, within anything that your, 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 your people follow, your membership, it, it, that actually compels them to get an abortion as a religious right. Mm-hmm. And, and they'll make that kind of claim when they rule against us. Mm-hmm. But if you look at a coach praying on the football field, the Bible specifically states that if you're going to pray, don't do it publicly like the hypocrites, do it in private. Mm-hmm. Like, the, you know, there's there's biblical tenets that run very contrary to this idea of making a public display of your praying. Mm-hmm. So what we're finding is like these technicalities are turned against us. And I think we have really strong claims when it comes to protecting abortion. Uh, I, I feel like if the law were being applied neutrally, they would say, okay, the Satanic Temple has a right to uphold bodily autonomy for its people and have have reproductive rights access. You know, the legal case, I think, if the law works properly, is very strong. But mm-hmm. what we're finding is, I think, things are so polarized right now that judges really don't care whether they're acting uh, neutrally or not because they're going to get away with it with a significant base one way or the other. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I mean, I guess the thing that we are all kind of waiting to find out is uh, whether highlighting repeatedly that the law is not being applied uh, neutrally and uniformly leads in some way to changes so that the law is applied neutrally and uniformly, you know, and I those uh, I hope those two things are connected. I'm not sure we will always see that happen. I also wanted to ask, you know, you mentioned uh, conditions being very polarized right now. And I wanted to ask about, uh, I guess, the sort of political atmosphere that you experience. I know the temple had a surge of attention in 2018 and 2019 when the movie Hail Satan came out. And I was wondering if, you know, if under right wing governments, there is more work for you to do and you get more positive attention. And then, you know, it, and that shifts when uh, Democrats, for example, come into power. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, has it been a sort of steady increase in attention? positive or negative for the satanic temple does it wax and wane with u.s politics and and if it does what what are those trends it it, it does uh when trump was elected we saw a steady rise for a time there in our membership and that can be both good and bad for some people it helps them realize better recognize better what satanism really means to us to see it contrast to what we're fighting against and other people think that we're just another platform for them to uh, do their grandstanding like they do on social media in ways that take unprincipled stands that just benefit their side. And I think, you know, the Satanic Temple has taken principled stands. We stand for free speech and religious liberty, and I think we stand for those in ways that both ends of the political spectrum claim they do, but often do not. And, and you know, we'll try to try to mold those laws to their convenience. I think as long as the Satanic Temple keeps the high ground and really stands by these principles, regardless of political fads, we'll have long-term staying power, regardless of how this culture war plays out. We'll have built a real community. Yeah, I wanted to ask also, what else is going? Like, what do you? What are some other really big fights that that are underway right now for the temple? Uh, still, we are doing our. Our, uh, our reproductive rights lawsuits, of course, and we're doing the after-school Satan clubs. And, you know, those, those lawsuits, you know, they get a lot of attention, but they're not the most important thing for us. We also have built local congregations. We've built a large community, and it keeps expanding. And as more time goes on, we have more people who identify with us who aren't necessarily uh, solely interested in the political activism, but are interested in the in the non-theistic religious community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that is an interesting I, I think that the most attention comes to you for the political activism. And I imagine also when you speak to people, there's a lot of eagerness to say hey, they don't actually worship the being of Satan and blah, blah, blah. But it, it probably sometimes obscures the uh, the actual non-theistic religion, I would imagine. It does. And I've also gotten to the point where I'm kind of burned out on trying to justify the Satanic Temple to people who have no right to ask us to justify ourselves to begin with. So while it's in our best interest that people understand what we really believe, I also feel in the cases of like the after school Satan Club, when a school board is asking us to justify ourselves by putting a pleasant face on it, my my feeling is that's not it's not the question here. You know, you can hate us as much as you want, but you shouldn't abandon 
Thank you so much. That was Lucian Greaves, co-founder and spokesperson for the Satanic Temple. We appreciate uh, the the work that you do there, Lucian. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, diving into a lot of uh, not-so-fun domestic topics right now. (laughs) Real big apologies to our next guest. Uh, We're going to maybe get to some good news at the very end of it, but we have a whole lot of bad to wade through. Apologies, Ted Rawl. Thank you for joining us. Ted's an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is The Stringer. Thank you, Ted. And of course, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, dealing with gross stuff is kind of my job, and I like it. So no apology needed. Okay, well, let's dive into this uh, menagerie of the loathsome today, starting with Elon Musk moving on to Hunter Biden and his laptop, some pretty depressing climate announcements, and then maybe something fun. Uh, Musk, look. It is a bummer, I guess, that Twitter, which had been so focused up until this moment on on, quote, healthy conversations. (laughs) Right. Uh, Now (laughs) it is going to turn into a hellscape. R.I.P. the ray of sunshine that Twitter had been. And uh, John and I talked about this a little bit before. Um, I I don't know. I I don't want to see Twitter become a more hateful place for uh, marginalized or vulnerable people. But I, I don't know that I'm going to predict that immediately. I don't know if you have any predictions, Ted. Um, you know, I, I think what's going to really happen is going to happen quickly and then not at all. And what I mean by that is it's billionaires and their playthings. Yes. He's busy. Twitter's not really his top priority, or at least it won't be after this, uh, after he goes and tours the headquarters and chops off a few heads. I think I think he's going to replace the top management team with his people. He's going to send out some general edicts about what he thinks uh, should be changed. I would certainly expect a lot of people like former President Trump who have been banned to be uh, de-banned and uh, allowed, re-platformed, allowed to rejoin uh, in the long run which in tech means six months, right. uh, we are going to be completely have forgotten about this story. And Twitter will pretty much seem like the same old, same old. It may just be a little bit, uh, believe it or not, I think it will be a little bit of a freer place. I, I think uh, there will be, they won't be as quick to ban people on the left or the right. I think it's just going to be, um, you know, a little more freewheeling. Uh, but but the big guy is not going to be paying that much attention later on. I just think it's very it is very sad. And the, the occasion of Musk buying Twitter is, you know, I think an important one to just note all of the other important media and social media sites that have either, you know, were either founded by people who went on to become incredibly powerful, wealthy people or purchased by them. Right. I mean, Jeff Bezos suggesting that the Chinese government will now have some influence over Twitter, which he walked back, to be fair, afterward, just because they're big Tesla buyers. They're just there are no principles in this conversation. And this has been the problem all all along. Right. Bezos is also a billionaire media owner, but somehow 
it doesn't matter that he owns the Washington Post just because. And this is the quote that I mentioned uh, to start the show. You have former NYT columnist and MSNBC analyst. And there was a time when he was a sort of a economic media darling, like about as progressive economically as you could get on mainstream. Uh, Anand Giri Dardas, he wrote about this change. In case you were wondering if you live in an oligarchy, now you know. Now we know, Ted. I mean, it's not even a first in media. And so it, it is frustrating. And the idea that this is the bad thing, right? This is the thing that makes the U.S. an oligarchy and not all of the oligarchs. Uh, it takes us back to the point that there just there is no principle here. There's no philosophical framework about what, you know, what should be public and what should be private and what is free speech and what is hate speech. And, you know, there's no class consciousness about who are all the owners of these, uh, you know, these entities. It's just sort of it's just sort of picking a team and then standing underneath the billionaire of your choice and either cheering or, or scowling. It's really it's very depressing. Uh, it's a little de- I mean, it's not it's depressing. But as you say, Michelle, it's not new. Um, the thing that's kind of uh, funny to me is the all the hand wringing from liberals uh, that seem to be along the lines that Twitter was run democratically. It kind of implies right. by this incredibly accountable board of directors who, uh, you know, we could all get behind what they were up to. Uh, no, no, this is just Silicon Valley. They're just they're just trying to make bank mm-hmm. um, in, in Twitter's case unsuccessfully. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's it's not like they were it's not like this is going to make much difference to you and me. I mean, this was all it's oligarchy, whether it's one quirky pot smoking uh, entrepreneur mm-hmm. or if it's 12 unaccountable members of a board of director who are all douches from Silicon Valley. Right. No, it, either oh, way, from Saudi it Arabia. no difference. <laughs> There's a kingdom right. holding company that had a, had a big chop. It was historically, uh, you know, free speech fanatics there. And, you know, I think I think, you know, as uh, someone who's old enough to remember family owned newspapers and family owned newspaper chains, I will say this is a dictatorship, basically, that, twi- that Twitter will become under. And dictatorship is the best system in the world if the dictator's awesome. And it's the worst system in the world if the dictator's not awesome. Right. So it all depends on how it goes. But that's no different, really, than having a bunch of, uh, you know, people that we've never heard of, you know, 12 people in a boardroom somewhere uh, in the in the Bay Area. I mean, it's just not it's not going to make. I just think the hand wringing was hilarious. Yeah, uh, but we have a bigger, we have a bigger, much bigger problem than Elon Musk. Right, which is the the actual oligarchy, right? Which did not start, you know, did, did, the the little uh, meter did not tip over at the moment Elon Musk purchased Twitter. It has just been, it, yeah, it has been pretty pretty grim to watch. And I also will say, I mean, I do think it is a shame. There's been some um, uh, discussion about the the Babylon Bee. The, the right wing, uh, quote unquote, comedy newspaper that's trying to be the onion uh, that was banned from Twitter because it continually was dead naming trans politicians. And so, I mean, I do think it is sad that the, the price for perhaps a more uniform application of, of content laws when it comes to political content is going to come at the cost of potentially, you know, trans people being harassed and dead named. I, I do think that that is a shame, right? I think that maybe we will not feel the difference as much as some other people. But again, this is not this is not the problem, right? This is a symptom of the larger problem. Yeah, I, I have to say, though, uh, maybe uh, I'm going to be uncharacteristically optimistic. 
I don't think that that kind of behavior is what what Musk wants to bring back. Mm -hmm. I just don't. I hope not. I don't think that he actively wants to. I, I hope not, too. I just don't want to, you know. That, that's an outcome that would be pretty sad. And also possibly in 10 days when nothing at all changes, we will all just, you know, be talking about something else. Probably still talking about Hunter Biden and his emails, Ted. Which is what I but, but, not on, but not on Twitter, because that's not allowed. Right. Well, hey, who knows? Maybe finally, finally, we can uh, we can read about Hunter Biden and his emails on Twitter once again. So the New York Post over the weekend uh, had a report about its review of White House visitor logs. Um, and it says it is found that one of Hunter Biden's business partners, Eric Schwerin, Schwerin, visited the White House 19 times between 2009 and 2015 while Joe Biden was vice president, of course. And while Hunter Biden was in the midst of making deals with this investment firm uh, that he and Schwerin ran. Schwerin met with Joe and Jill Biden's aides a bunch of times. He seems to have met Joe Biden himself once and certainly this would cast some doubt on Joe Biden's repeated assertions that he knew nothing about his son's business affairs and wasn't involved in them. The other thing that this is doing is probably giving more uh, justification to Republicans to launch a special counsel investigation into Joe Biden and Hunter Biden if they take back Congress next year. This is something that Ted Cruz has already called for. And so it's sort of we have two conversations here. When, how serious do you think this new report is? Uh, and what it says about Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and the Biden family. And then, you know, what what does this uh, foretell about the future of U.S. politics? Well, in a, in a prosecution, you can only nail someone for what you can prove. And it's a far stretch uh, between to say, uh, OK, this guy visited the White House and met multiple times and met with Biden mm -hmm. once uh, to say, like you know, that a, that a deal was struck or. Uh, or even the terms were discussed. And, you know, there's always the, in, in Biden's case, he can plausibly say that he forgot right. what they talked about. Um, so, and, you know, you know, in kidding aside, he is a busy man. He he could have forgotten. It's, it's sure. plausible. So I think there's enough reasonable doubt to drive a, a small SUV through, but mm -hmm. he's, uh, but, you know, overall, I, I think what we all can, understand here is that uh, there's a considerable amount of fire generating all this smoke. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's whether it's this or something else, it's going to come out. And, you know, it's uh, I'm going to laugh if well, I shouldn't say if when the Republicans take Congress back this fall mm -hmm. and they are going to investigate this and mm -hmm. it is impeachable if it is what it looks like. And you know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, that's not necessarily, I mean, it might be bad for the Republic, but, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's good for the truth. And this kind of behavior really shouldn't be tolerated. Mm -hmm. uh, Biden, Biden's gotten away with a lot. And, 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 you know, and the Democrats have got swept this under the rug for a long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, enough is enough. No, I think that I think that is all true. I simply worry that you know, as you say, bad for bad for the republic, but good for the truth, because I don't know that, you know, step one special counsel investigation into Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and, you know, a, a pay to play, whatever, uh, you know, step step two impeachment, step three corruption in American politics is over. Right. That's where I think I think actually what happens is we just enter a new political era where everyone is as corrupt as they are now. It's just also everyone's impeaching each other constantly over it. Yes, that's that is that is my fear. And it's not to say I don't I don't think that, uh, as you say, all of this fire is worth investigation because I think it, you know, I think that it is. I just 
I don't know. I guess I just despair uh, of seeing this result in people actually being afraid to make the kind of deals that are going to uh, engender this sort of investigation. You know what I mean, Ted? Well, I mean, honestly, uh, you know, all the most recent presidents we can think of deserved impeachment for one thing or 10 things or another. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, in a way, it's fair. Look, it would be really great if we could create a political climate where someone who was an aspirant for high office uh, had to think twice when offered a corrupt deal and said to himself, well, you know, I, I, I would love to, but I just don't think I can because I'll totally get caught if I do it yeah. and then I'll get impeached and I might go to prison. That would be great. I, I would love to. I think that would be a better country to live in. Yeah. But do you think this gets us there? Oh, uh, no. <laughs> That's the I problem. Move, I mean, maybe I think it hey, moves us a little bit further down the road, maybe. But we need. I mean, the problem is it's all political. It's we don't have a national agreement uh, about what kind of behavior is okay and what's okay. What we really have is team politics, where if we can nail the other the guy from the other party, awesome. But when our party does it, we we just remain silent and cover up for him. I mean, it comes back to the Elon Musk thing. It is. It's just team politics. Which billionaire team are you on? Which uh, party backed by billionaire team are you on? Yeah. And I don't I look, I, I woke up on the pessimistic side of the bed this morning. I would like the answer is always maybe maybe this gets us closer. I would like I would like to see that. I think it is uh, it's probably naive to imagine those dots are going to be connected too quickly. Um, but but yes, you know, since you were uh, uh, prognosticating about the midterm results, uh, I wanted to ask, I saw you doing something uh, a little surprising on social media, giving some advice to Democrats on Twitter as to how to sell people on their party ahead of the midterms out there doing some free consulting there, Ted. And now I, I, I do usually scoff when people say the problem uh, for Democrats is messaging, because I think the problem is often failing to deliver on campaign promises and wanting to adopt the language of activism like healthcare is a human right without actually wanting to do the things that those activists ask for. In this case, you know, dismantling our for-profit healthcare system uh, or, or, you know, promising dignity to immigrants without following through ever in the last 20 years. Um, but also I will acknowledge that both can be true and that the performance can be disappointing and the messaging can be bad. And so I, I wanted to ask you about what you what you think Democrats could and should be saying if they do actually want to win uh, or keep at least one um, chamber of Congress. Well, you know, politics is sports. And uh, like any sports fan, uh, you know, I, I like to look at the player and yell and say, you know, why didn't you do this? Why, you know, why didn't you run a little faster? You know, why didn't you catch that ball? And so I think in this situation, uh, you have a, a party that doesn't really have the worst possible record to track on. And no. it's not and it's certainly not doing what it could do mm -hmm. in order to prevail. I mean, they and it's and it was just I just you know, for me, this was like more of a uh, almost like an ontological exercise mm -hmm. um, just to see like, you know, well, what would I tell them to do? And look, here's the thing. Uh, the economy is not a disaster at all. And Americans and most elections are decided on the economy. The economy is a real mixed bag. Uh, unemployment's super low. For, for decades, I've been railing that that's the most important metric. There you go. Low unemployment's great. Uh, low, you have, I mean, you do have, uh, you know, people who've dropped out of the workforce, but officially speaking, it looks good. You've also got 
uh, you know, people are getting raises. That's good too. They can brag about that. Mm. They have inflation, but they can say, you know, it wouldn't be that hard to say, yeah, prices are going up, but guess what? So are your wages. So you're going to be able to pay those higher prices. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in other words, it's, it's, re- it's optimistic. It's selling yourself, but it's also real. You're acknowledging how things really are, which I think voters would appreciate, and they're not really much used to in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, they could also uh, point out the fact that Biden ran on uh, doing something about COVID and not being erratic on the policy. And he could, you know, take a victory lap and say, look, you know, uh, things are open now. Lockdowns are gone. Mm-hmm. We're demasking. You know, we're looking forward to a summer of fun and travel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's not talk about the gas prices. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> Just don't ask him about the war. Yeah. But literally, the thing, the thing is, they don't have any kind of message at all. And it is bizarre because, you know, they are running in an election. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not even selling what they have. And it's a little weird. Uh, Republicans don't have much to show off at all. And somehow they're much more disciplined about it. Yeah. So what is the problem? I mean, there is a huge political consulting machine, right? They, 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 we talked at the end of the week last week about the uh, record-breaking haul, or I don't know if it was record-breaking, but it was a lot. $16.5 million this yeah. quarter Democrats had hauled in. A lot of that goes to messaging, right? It goes to consultants who are paid to get people to vote for Democrats. And you have to wonder, one, are they just... Are are there no standards, right? Are there no standards in the party for for performance, for what these consultants should actually do? Of course, there was always the question, do they want to win? Do Democrats like to be in power or do they really like to be in opposition? Um, uh, AOC, a couple of months back, got a lot of flack for for suggesting that uh, Democratic sort of spending on um Outreach to voters was I, I think she might have called it criminal in some way, the way this money was being spent uh, and getting sort of no no bang for the buck. So, like, what is the problem with the messaging machine? Because certainly I don't think it's underfunded. Well, it's going to be sort of a circular argument here. I mean, Democrats are basically idiots and idiots hire idiots. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's kind of like uh, in my profession in cartooning. Uh, you know, you, you if you looked at a newspaper, you would think that we live in one of the worst periods for editorial cartooning in history, because mm-hmm. what runs in like USA Today and Washington Post is garbage. The truth is the best cartoons ever produced in this country are being made right now. But the editors have never been stupider or less daring. So they're not running them. I think what's happening is that, uh, you know, the DNC and uh, and and the top campaign managers and consultants, they're just not hiring the right consultants. There's good consultants out there who know what they're doing and who could, uh, you know, who can crunch the data and find out and put together a comprehensive message that could stem the loss, staunch the bleeding this fall. Mm -hmm. They're not hiring those people. They're hiring idiots. And you can sort of tell because a lot of the same old, bold-faced names from the Clinton years keep coming up in Politico and these kinds of articles. And I'm always like, wait, that guy again? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's it's like always the same, uh, you know, old white guys. Uh, you know, it's yep. it's uh, it's 30 years later, you know, it's demographics have changed. Maybe some of that is the problem. I mean, there was a little uh, over the weekend, uh, you know, there, there was a little bit of a flutter over the San Francisco Chronicle uh, article 
California is aging. That's what makes Feinstein the perfect representative about, oh, of course, oh. this woman who is, you know, faced months <laughs> worth of, of rumors. And now people going, you know, uh, actual members of her party, members of Congress saying, yes, this woman is not mentally fit to do the job she's doing. And yet, you know, you, you have papers advocating. No, no, no. What, that's exactly what we need. Of course, it's, it's, what we need is someone who is 95 years old to to govern a state full of 95 year olds. I mean, I have to think it is possible that part of the problem is just the age of this party and it's uh, and it's sort of elite uh, power structures. Yeah, it's not diverse. Right. I mean, you mm -hmm. wouldn't want it to look like a dot com where no one's over 30 and no one has any experience. You'd really want uh, there to be age and class and other forms of diversity represented uh, in order to get you not for symbolic reasons, but just to get you uh, more, you know, just more more ears closer to the ground mm -hmm. to uh, get a better sense of, of what people are thinking. But frankly, it's really not that hard these days. I mean, people are worried about inflation. They're they're, you know, Democrats and Republicans alike tell pollsters that that's unusual. You, you know, in most years, Democrats and Republicans worry about different things. And that makes it hard when you're trying to peel away swing voters. Mm -hmm. uh, not this year. That's that's easy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Democrats could point out that historically Republicans have tended to preside over more recessions than Democrats have. Uh, Democrats tend to preside over more of an expanding economy, but they never try to make that sale. But, you know, I mean, it's it's just one thing after another like that. They're not trying to make any sale. And I guess maybe they will use the Feinstein argument to justify 79 year old Biden. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but that's the other thing, too, is there's no energy in the party. It's run by old people. And it feels old. And basically the messaging, I mean, my favorite messaging is Republicans don't want, you know, are trying to suppress the vote. And the implication is, of course, that that's totally self-serving. Republicans are trying to keep you from voting for us, the Democrats, which is true. But it's not But the, the elections aren't about the ruling class. Elections are about the voters and or at least they should be. And that's what the voters think. So, you know, address the voters and their concerns, which is just not happening now. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, an expanding economy is great, except again, or, or like uh, unemployment, right? Low unemployment is great if people are working jobs that, you know, give them enough money to actually buy food. Right. I, I do think, you know, rising wages are great. They have been eclipsed by inflation. Like there's some aspects of that that are a tough, a tough sell. And, you know, an expanding economy that is basically just sort of funneling money into Silicon Valley and uh, getting, you know, putting everyone behind the wheel of an Uber or Lyft vehicle is sometimes going to be a little bit more difficult than, to sell than a tax break that gives you an extra $500 a year. You know, I mean, this is the, I don't know, this is the quandary that you, you find yourself in when you look at why people make the decisions they do. But a lot of times, Michelle, you kind of need the sort of Bill Clinton, I feel your pain thing. Sure. You know, it goes a long way for this for a president to go on and say, listen, I hear you. This really sucks. Uh, you know, this is what happens because we stimulated the economy. There's a lot of other things going on. Um, you know, the, the economy is complicated and big. We get it. We're working on it. We're on top of it. You know, it's kind of like like uh, Pulp Fiction. You know, we're mm -hmm. calling the wolf. Don't worry. It'll be OK. Yeah. Yeah, I do think sort of more directly addressing people and treating them like they aren't idiots would be a great benefit to whatever party starts to do it. Ted, you want to talk about <laughs> climate change a little bit? I don't particularly, but it seems like we really ought to. 
Uh, we had the U.N. Secretary General on Friday saying to avert climate catastrophe, the main emitters must drastically cut emissions starting this year, which people have pointed out is a deadline of about 36 weeks. But don't worry. Today, we got the news that the Biden administration is going to phase out incandescent light bulbs over the next year or so. So problem solved. Uh, I guess I will say the, the rules the Biden administration is going to change will save consumers, according to the White House, about three billion dollars a year and will cut carbon emissions by 222 million metric tons over the next 30 years, which sounds like a lot, except we emit something like five or six billion metric tons of carbon emissions every year. So I think, you know, still still comedy in that juxtaposition. Um, you know, it is nice, I guess, to see the, the secretary general calling for urgent action. This is not the first time. Uh, is there action on the climate anywhere giving you hope, Ted? Uh, to be honest, there is no single issue that I think is a, as important, and B, we are doing less about. Yeah. I mean, go outside. People are driving SUVs still. Yeah. Um, you know, like what? Yeah. <laughs> People are, uh, you know, look, you know, look, you know, try to book a high speed uh, train uh, from Washington to, say, Kansas City. Right. Good luck. Yeah. None. Um, you know, the rest of the world is uh, doing a much better job than we are. We're a massive emitter. We like to point to countries like China and India. But the point is that, no, we're not doing anything. And I think to tell you the truth, I think uh, I think it's too late. I think there's so much uh, energy pumped into the atmosphere that if we went deep green and uh, we abolished internal combustion tomorrow and all started living off the land, Climate change would still continue. We, the polar ice cap would be gone forever. Um, I, 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 think it, I think it's been too late. I think it's been too late for decades, maybe half a century or more. It's a joke at this point. Maybe we shouldn't even bother to try because clearly uh, under capitalism, there is no incentive whatsoever to, uh, to, to, to you know, risk missing the chance at a nickel uh, when and who cares what happens to the planet as a result. This is what all of these conversations come down to, at least the ones that we are having on this show, is that it comes to, you know, eventually you have to make a, a political decision. You have to make a decision about your economy and what it is going to be geared toward. And yeah, it is incompatible right now to do some of the things that it's been agreed need to be done to stop climate change under capitalist economies. It's simply the, the two are completely incompatible. I mean, the, the Biden administration did manage to pass this uh, this, uh, you know, rule that will phase out these incandescent light bulbs. But the administration tried to update their guidelines for building new gas pipelines recently. I think this was a couple of months back now. And it was immediately shut down by a bunch of industry and, and business associations. You said, oh, not so fast. You can't make us do environmental assessments for new natural gas pipelines. What are you talking about? And so, again, like. It's, it's not even it's it's a, a one fraction of the fossil fuel economy building new pipelines. Yeah, we'll make it a little bit harder and that gets shut down. So, yeah, it is. to I don't know. I, I think that deciding that it's too late and that it's hopeless is probably not the right thing to do, even though, I you know, it, it certainly does seem that way when viewed from a lot of different angles. I suppose there are still more uh, local fights that are worth having locally sort of protecting uh, land and, and water and air. But yeah, it does feel it does feel a little bit. I don't know. It feels a little grim. It feels like a Monday instead of a Tuesday, is what I'm trying to say here, Ted. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I hate, I, I, you know, we're we're trying to find the truth here. I mean, look, I think, you know, look, there's a small chance that I'm wrong. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and that uh, you know the earth is so res- the the environment is so resilient that if we really get serious, we're going to start to see some changes. I mean, I, I always think I grew up in Ohio. Lake Erie was declared biologically dead in the late 1970s. Supposedly, they couldn't even find microbes. But then a lot of factories that were located in Cleveland and other uh, industrial cities around along the lakes uh, went out went under due to a recession. And as soon as they stopped dumping garbage into the lake, um, it, it came back. And within 10 years, people were pulling big fish out of it. So, you know, the earth can come back. But when are we going to leave it alone? Yeah. <laughs> when are we going to let it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the answer is always, as, as you know, to our political question before, the answer always has to be maybe. Right. But it's certainly going to require a level of political will that we are not seeing right now. Certainly, in the, you know, after the sort of fiasco that was COP26, uh, it's hard to regain some kind of momentum. Uh, maybe maybe at the U.N. they will able to do, be able to do that. I, I don't know. It seems like uh, the push has got to come from somewhere. There were a bunch of high profile, uh, you know, they were actions blocking roads and stuff in, in D.C. last week. You had climate scientists out there getting arrested, uh, blocking traffic on highways. You know, people are trying to to take drastic action to draw attention to these problems. But again, it's not, you know. We could all stop buying cars, but I don't think individual consumption is going to solve this problem. No, it has to be government regulation. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff, right? Like sprawl. Uh, you know, why are we allowing more construction of new homes when we have millions of, of abandoned and empty homes right now? Mm-hmm. There should be a complete national building freeze. Uh, no, you know, we should do what cities like Portland have done: establish a, a line around the city and say, okay, well, you can't. You know, nothing can be built beyond this point. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's, a, you know, I was thinking about the, the sanctions against Russia, right? I mean, it's hilarious that uh, the U.S. is so addicted to energy that they went and sucked up to the Saudis mm-hmm. and Venezuelans, of all people, you know, our enemies, uh, well, Biden's enemy, mm-hmm. um, to, you know, ask them to make up the difference for what we're boycotting from Russia because we can't do out, uh, do without. I mean, you know, they could have said, well, this is actually an opportunity for us to uh, reduce global consumption and, you know, prices are going to go up and that's going to reduce consumption and it might cause an economic shock. But we're trying to we're trying to save the planet here. So maybe this will work out well. You know, it, there was no there was no not even a thought of that. No, no. All right, Ted Rawl. Next time we have you, we'll talk about some more. Uh, we'll have some more uplifting news. But in the meantime, why don't you tell our listeners about your podcast and where they can go to get your latest book? Sure. Uh, it's all on my website, Rawl.com, R-A-L-L.com. All right. Thanks so much, Ted. We'll talk to you again soon. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Back to Political Misfits. I'm John Kiriakou here in the studio with Michelle Witte. We have something of a complicated story for you. A company called Anomaly 6 or A6 and a company called Zignal Labs with a Z have combined cell phone tracking technology with social media surveillance technology to spy on literally anybody in the world or even everybody 
in the world, if they so chose. Marketed as a way to spy on Russians in Ukraine or on Chinese submarines, the companies now have a contract with the Pentagon. How'd they do that? Well, they used a demonstration. They, they spied on NSA officials and CIA officers using their own cell phones, uh, and then they demonstrated it, how they did it. We're going to talk about that with Dr. Jack Poulsen. He's the executive director of the tech accountability nonprofit Tech Inquiry. He's the co-author, sorry, he's the co-author of an article in The Intercept that details this technology. Fascinating article. Welcome, Dr. Poulsen. Thank you for having me, John. We're really happy to have you. This really is a very complicated uh, story and, and a frightening story. Um, the article that you've written is very well sourced. Uh, you explain how this technology works. You show that virtually nobody is safe from mass surveillance. First, can you explain to us what exactly this technology does and how it tracks people? Sure. So it's been known for a number of years that essentially in response to the, the U.S. government having legal constraints about what it can directly gather about cell phone locations, uh, that instead what has happened is that a marketplace has emerged where applications on your phone, in order to make a little bit extra money, sell their access to your phone's GPS location to right. data brokers, who in many cases end up reselling that to the FBI, US Special Operations, et cetera. Um, but that's actually not new. Now, th that's not to say it's it's not disturbing, but what was, I, I think, received the most attention in our article was the way that that surveillance can actually be used and combined with, for example, uh, social media surveillance. And so one of the things that was a bit shocking is that there's long been a discussion where it's argued that such location data is anonymous. Right. But in fact, in this case, there was literally a button that was used called regularity, which would infer where your home address was from the GPS locations that, again, would be collected from, you know, maybe a weather app, maybe a dating app, uh, maybe even a Muslim prayer app, as was known in some cases. Um, and, and so really part of the challenge is that it, it's not known which apps are are reselling in a lot of cases. Our phones and the apps that we use constantly harvest this this data from us. You say something very important about that in the article. I've got the quote here. You say, countless common smartphone apps are constantly harvesting your location and relaying it to advertisers, typically without your knowledge or informed consent, relying on disclosures buried in the legalese of the sprawling terms of service that the companies involved count on you never reading. Once your location is beamed to an advertiser, there is currently no law in the United States prohibiting the further sale and resale of that information to firms like Anomaly 6, which are free to sell it to their private sector and governmental clientele. For anyone interested in tracking the daily lives of others, the digital advertising industry is taking care of the grunt work day in and day out. All a third party need do is buy access, unquote. Is that what these country companies rather are using? They're just using uh, the information that we either unwittingly or uh, unknowingly uh, turn over when we use these these apps. Yes, that's the the current understanding, and this was 
actually stated very clearly by Brendan Clark of Anomaly 6, who even laughed at this is all technically in the 60-page end-user license agreements that no one actually reads when they agree to install an app on their phone. Uh, but, you know, in addition to the GPS being gathered, also they're they're collecting, for example, email addresses you might have associated with the account, what IP addresses you're coming in from, and then they're building maps between all of those things. My goodness. Um, what would the government do with such information? Do they, First of all, do, do they really care to have this information on American citizens, or is this really sort of an offensive overseas uh, program that they're considering or that they're carrying out? So that's an interesting question. Uh, Anomaly 6 has actually asserted to U.S. Senator Ron Wyden that they do not sell data on U.S. citizens to the Department of Defense. But as was, I think, pretty carefully reported in our article, the demonstration that was very casually given in the sales pitch was literally de-anonymizing an ostensible U.S. spy. And so clearly they have data, at least it would, you know, they're asserting it's a U.S. citizen. Certainly the locations were in the United States. Um, Obviously the Department of Homeland Security would have a lot of interest in what's going on domestically. The FBI would have a lot of interest in what's going on domestically. And, you know, in fact, even earlier today, I got a contract back via a Freedom of Information request on a contract that Zignal Labs, one of the two members of this sales pitch, uh, has with the U.S. Secret Service. Are there any measures embedded in the technology that would protect civil liberties? Or maybe a better question is, should Americans expect any protection of their civil liberties when they've already voluntarily turned over their data to these these big tech platforms? Uh, so, I mean, I, I guess the big tech question, I, you know, it, I think in this case, you know, big tech does collect the most location data. So, for example, I think it's fair to say Google has some of the most concerning location data. I, I in fact, uh, published a recording um, that I gathered a little over a month ago for how the U.S. government um, gets location tracking warrants from, for example, Google, Facebook, et cetera. So that's certainly its own phenomenon. But in this case, it's actually the small players that are the problem. It's, uh, again, like a dating app, a... Uh, a Muslim prayer app, you know, and then reselling to some fly-by-night Virginia contractor. And so, uh, unfortunately, the the reality is right now that the the burden is being shifted onto the the individual consumer. And as was stated in the last segment, you know, <laughs> individual consumption isn't going to solve this problem. And so. You know, uh, the the ACLU, for example, called for the passage of a bill that Ron Wyden has put forth called the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act. Um, I'm not a a lawyer or a lobbyist, but it's worth noting that that's what the ACLU is calling for right now. Have we gotten to the point where the only way we can protect ourselves is simply to not use a cell phone? Is the situation that dire? And the reason I ask that question is just in the last couple of months, there was a an article in the Washington Post that um, that had a reporter uh, make two 
different trips around the city, going to, you know, stores and a hospital and a post office and places like that. And in in one trip, he had his phone off. And in the other, he had his phone on airplane mode. And in both cases, the phone continued to track his movements all around the city and plotted out every single stop, even when he paused for five seconds to get into an Uber. So with with that kind of locational data available about us 24 hours a day, essentially, is the only alternative to just not use a cell phone? So it's worth noting that in the demonstration, Clark explicitly addressed what airplane mode does. And his argument was, even if you're literally on an airplane, I still have your track once you turn airplane mode off. And so think of that as it doesn't stop the collection. It just delays the upload in many cases. Right. And so th- that can be quite um, misleading. But I'll say that, you know, and I, I'm not here to give security advice, but personally, I keep a phone that's as stripped down as possible. You know, don't install any applications really, except maybe one encrypted messaging app, yeah. maybe two, uh, and treat that as your sort of secure device, which, you know, and maybe don't have a SIM card and <laughs> right. at, at least minimize the threat surface would be, I, I think, standard, you know, uh, understanding. But again, like th- that's really shifting the burden down to individuals to yes. protect themselves. And the question is, why isn't this illegal in the first place? Like, why can't I have the right to know which applications would be selling my location to, I don't know, uh, U.S. intelligence agencies right. or the Department of Defense? Hey, Jack, it's or Michelle. Potentially. Uh, hi, uh, Michelle. I, I, wa- I wanted to ask a question, but I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Oh, no problem. I I just was going to say that, you know, if this is all in the commercial marketplace, you know, definitely don't just assume that it's U.S. (laughs) intelligence buying this. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Or, of course, that, you know, somehow it's better in the hands of U.S. intelligence and other other places. It sort of comes back to, you know, a theme here. And this is something we we often ask our tech guests. But, you know, (laughs) I, again, I don't want to just be be hitting the hopeless gong all all the two hours of this show today. But I guess the, the question is, you know, what kind of what kind of political atmosphere would we have to be in for people to be confident that uh, regulations against this kind of thing, laws against this kind of thing, would be abided by? You know what I mean? Is that like the the question is always once the once the capability exists. Is there any way really of of regulating it? Should we ever expect regulations to have any teeth? And often when we talk to our, you know, our guests will say, no, 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 it, like lots of capabilities can exist that we don't we don't follow through on. So the the possibility of real, uh, you know, to, uh, regulation that actually has teeth still exists. I wanted to get your opinion on, on that, whether whether. What we need is is simply uh, more up to date and comprehensive regulation or maybe a, a different political environment for those regulations to really uh, make us feel genuinely protected. So I, I think no one should ever underestimate the Department of Defense's bureaucracy mm-hmm. and how much of a, a weight that puts on contractors. Mm. I happen to spend a very large percentage of my time monitoring public procurement, including, you know, not just who the prime contractors are, but who subcontracted underneath them. And due to federal regulation, a lot of that is public well beyond 
what it is that the Department of Defense will release when it talks about certain contracts. And, and so I would say that I, I think there is a lot of power in legislation which enforces transparency on supply chains, especially if it's something that becomes just a fundamental part of the accounting of the procurement or of the reporting. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't consider it hopeless. Like, obviously, there's no, you know, the, the Department of Defense probably doesn't want me doing forensic analysis on who its subcontractors are. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, because of information that's legally demanded, I can do that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think bureaucracy is, in a sense, an asset in these situations, mm -hmm. if you can enforce uh, compliance. Mm -hmm. Well, this this is a good argument for that flip phone that I that I really never wanted to give up. I love my I, old Nokia. I loved <laughs> I love it. My old Nokia. Yeah. I loved mine yeah. too. And you see, you learn something new every day. Well, that was the voice of Jack Poulsen. He's the executive director of the tech accountability nonprofit Tech Inquiry. He's also the co-author of an article in the Intercept that you really want to check out. Uh, it's called Anomaly. Sorry, I'm going to say that again. It's called American phone tracking firm demoed surveillance powers by spying on CIA and NSA. Don't miss it. It's worth a trip to the intercept. You're listening to political misfits on radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come back with some final headlines. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Woody here with John Kiriakou with a few last headlines for you today. I'm really trying to decide which one I want to get into first. I think I'll go with the most fun first. Yeah, that, yes. That's I a love this story. Uh, family in California all winter heard weird snoring sounds. Where are these sounds coming from? The, the settling of our house really sounds like actual snoring of a living being. Uh, apparently, they asked their neighbors if the neighbors heard anything like that. The neighbors said, you must be imagining it. No. Turns out a family of bears had been hibernating under their house. The whole family. Uh, so this is in California. It's a family in uh, Lake Tahoe. They found five bears that have been hibernating under their home. Uh, they learned this when the bears woke up and decided to come outside and check out the spring. Uh, I think this is great. I wish I wish there was anything but rats in the uh, tunnels around my yard and in my house. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, they say they had, it was a mama bear and four chubby little bears following her around and, uh, yeah, went into a little crawl space under a house. Yeah, we don't see that here in the D.C. area. You know, I've, I've been going to a lot of cemeteries lately in the D.C. area for this book that I'm working on, and you see these enormous holes in the ground. Well, I've never seen so many uh, uh, gophers in my entire life mm -hmm. as I've seen in these cemeteries, but then you see holes of the same size here around the office, and they are rats the size of dogs or cats. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. I'd rather have a bear to tell you the truth. <laughs> but yeah, under some <laughs> circumstances, that is true. Also, of course, the uh, we were not here to talk about the French election on Monday, but right. no surprise there. Emmanuel Macron won. I didn't realize 
He's the first French president to win re-election in a very long time, according to the Wall Street yeah, Journal was, this morning. Something like Mitterrand was the last one back mm-hmm. in the 80s or something like that. Also with, I think, historically low voter turnout. Yeah. Uh, which I guess is higher in France than in some other countries, but still lower in France. So, yeah, I mean, it, it not a great trend, I don't think. Again, no. if, if, it, if it's just constantly just a, a minimum of people coming out to vote for the lesser evil. Right. Which is what, you know, this is what we've seen in the United States recently. And this is what we are seeing in France. It's it yes. Doesn't feel great. And a lot was made over the fact that he got I think it was 58 percent. Mm-hmm. Um. 58%, that's, by in U.S. terms, that's a landslide, mm-hmm. right? But um, this is actually the the highest, the, the 42% that uh, Marine Le Pen won is by far the best turnout that a far-right candidate has ever received mm-hmm. in, uh, in France. Mm-hmm. So something yeah. to watch there. Yeah. Uh, we also got news over the weekend that Nicaragua is uh, completed its withdrawal from the Organization of American States. It has left. It said it had closed the local OAS office and revoked the credentials of its representative as part of its decision to leave, um, says. Let's see. Uh, I'm kind of disappointed in that. Do you the know OAS why? is mad about it. Yeah, yeah, I, I imagine that they would be. Do, do you know why they withdrew? Uh, let's see. Began the process to leave the OAS uh, in November, shortly after Daniel Ortega's election. Um I think that they were angry about criticism over uh, that vote's fairness. Um, and also, uh, you know, in Nicaragua, I think uh, quite, you know, w- with some merit, describes the OAS as uh, interventionist and controlled by the United States. And, you know, the OAS is certainly, I think, played a role in the coup in Bolivia. Right. Uh, drawing, you know, gen- generating alarm over uh, supposedly suspicious voting patterns that weren't actually suspicious at all, but at leading all. to the ouster of Eva Morales. And so I think that was probably uh, the last straw. I have a friend who uh, is a journalist living and working in Bolivia right now. And he said that uh, since this U.S. intervention, indirect as it may have been, uh, the country just still has has not gotten back on track again. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know. It, it, it's forced people um, off the voter rolls. Uh, there are demonstrations all the time. Crime is up. You know, this happens a lot. We should have just left those people alone. Mm-hmm. There's also sort of an update with Alec Baldwin, although not really. Right. Uh, there was a por- report last week we didn't get to mention, uh, but uh, Baldwin's team coming out and saying they were exonerated by a report uh, by, I believe, New Mexico law enforcement that had found, among other things, you know, had had found that gun safety on the surprise, surprise, gun safety on the set seemed to be really lax uh, and wanting. And also, and I think this is what uh, Baldwin's team was making much of, that um, as as producer, you know, in, in his production role, he was limited to adjusting scripts. And, right. and timing, which is what he has said. All you know, he said, "Yes, I'm a producer, but I didn't have any role in this stuff. That was a much more limited thing." Other people have been saying this is a labor issue, and ultimately, uh, the responsibility lies at the top. If you were, you know, if you were at the helm of a ship that was operating with yeah. uh, such dangerous conditions, um, so he's been saying that that report exonerates him. Uh, and now we have videos of him rehearsing with the gun before the shooting, you know, making a big drama about it. But of course, he was rehearsing the gun with the shooting. He's maintaining his line that he did not pull the trigger, that his finger was on the trigger, but he didn't pull it. Right. I don't even know if that. The bullet just magically came out and went 
you know, and hit two people. Yeah. Uh, there, there are two different issues here. While this may exonerate him from any criminal liability, and the the report from New Mexico law enforcement mm. uh, includes a quote from the armorer who was a, a young, uh, you know, 24, 26 year old, whatever, whatever. Hannah Gutierrez, I think. And they're right. also, you know, I think that she was the the child of a famous armorer. Correct. And so some sort of allegations that perhaps nepotism Maybe has played nepotism. a role in her getting a responsibility that was really. Uh, according to reports, right, having a level of responsibility that really outstripped her experience. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she made this comment as soon as the gun went off. I re- I just effed up my career. Oh, no. That's what she, yeah, it wasn't like, oh, my God, I hope these people are okay. Wow. It was, I just effed up my career. Um, so Alec Baldwin is saying, you see, even she knew that she was the one who was criminally liable. But the fact remains that Alec Baldwin was not just the producer of this film. He owns the production. He owns the film. And so he's still civilly liable for what happened to these people. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Alec Baldwin is likely not going to prison for this. But this is going to cost him a fortune to settle the inevitable claims that come out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I think if you are, if you, if you own the production, right, then you own the production. You own the production. That's the bottom line. I also do want to say, I mean, when we talked about Ukrainian um, refugees coming over uh, earlier. I made a mistake. Well, I mean, it's again, you know, there have been programs in the past to allow private citizens to sponsor refugees. I'm I'm looking at one uh, that was announced earlier this year. Uh, that would allow private citizens to sponsor Afghan refugees, right? Yes. After we uh, spent 20 years tearing that country to pieces and then abruptly fled. So it is not as though similar similar programs don't exist. It's just so, uh, you know, there, I'm sure there are similar programs to help uh, would-be immigrants, migrants from Central America find some comfort and be taken care of. It is just the attention and the scale and the swiftness with which these programs are being put in place and and uh, and implemented and and funded for Ukrainians, as opposed to any of the many many other refugees that yes. we have generated and the many many other migrants who have been coming to the U.S. for a very long time, uh, the comparison there is pretty stark, right? So it's not yes. as though none of this stuff has existed before, um, but the the scale of it offered for Ukraine just does make you scratch your head. I want to add something, too. In in the last hour or so, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris has tested positive for COVID-19. There was kind of a funny, it wasn't meant to be funny, but to me it was funny, announcement from the White House that uh, she hasn't been in contact with uh, President Biden, so he's he's safe. Well, why hasn't she right. been in contact with President right. Biden? She's Vice President of the United States. And then just a minute ago, the New York Times issued a, a a push notification saying that the CDC is saying that most Americans have been exposed to COVID, even if we don't know it. 60% of Americans are showing some sort of a, of an antibody to COVID and the rest of us have probably had it or have been exposed to it and don't know it. Mm -hmm. You know what? I hope that's true. Because I've been a nervous wreck about this for the last two and a half years. Mm -hmm. And if I've already had it and didn't even know it, then 
that makes my day. Also, tangentially speaking of COVID, uh, fights ongoing over whether or not the Biden administration will be able to rescind Title 42, which was that regulation right. put in place uh, by the Trump administration to prevent migration for in the interest of uh, public health. Right. That was the justification. Of course, the Trump administration simply wanted to stop immigration from lots of countries. And so the Biden administration is, you know, it's been an interesting journey. They first were in court defending their ability to maintain that rule, which was a little bit odd, but they wanted to, you know, defend their the authority of the government to put these rules in place and then to to uh, rescind them. And so the Biden administration has said that rule will expire at the end of May. Um, there has been some pushback, which we talked about last week, even within the Democratic Party, about uh, whether or not to do that. But it might be that uh, Joe Biden is not going to have to make that decision because a, a judge has now temporarily blocked the administration from ending the, the border restrictions for migrants. This is a judge in Louisiana. So, again, uh, the administration will probably find itself back in court once again, trying to uh, trying to now lift that regulation. In the meantime, I don't know what they're putting in place to deal with what will be a surge of migrants who, again, I hope, I hope are welcomed into the United States. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so but, too. you know, you, you will have to put in place uh, personnel and, and procedures and, and shelters and all of that stuff to deal with people coming over the border. You cannot just lift this and then let it go. You know, maybe it's just because the administration hasn't made the general public privy to many of its uh, uh, policies, but I, I just don't see what the policy is. I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see how this court battle plays out. That's all we have time for today. I want to say thanks to our producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>